Father in heaven, thank you so much once again for the opportunity to open up your word. God, I recognize today that, uh, like it says in Isaiah 66, uh, you look on those who tremble at your word. There's a certain humility. There's a certain sense of need and desperation that when we open up this Bible, it's not just flipping through these pages flippantly, but it's an opportunity to hear a living word from the living God. And so I pray just for me personally that you would still my heart long enough to listen. That for each and every one of us, you would cause us to be still and know that you are God. We're asking God that the things that we see and read and hear uh, would not just be from our own thoughts or from mine, but from you. Thank you. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. All right, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. It's that little epistle there in the middle of the New Testament. Uh, We've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And we're going to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. All right, I'm reading from the New King James Bible and... um, Really, I'm just going to let Paul like, introduce this stuff for himself because he does a really good job of it anyway. All right? So Philippians chapter 3, a, a familiar refrain that we hear all throughout Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 1, he starts out saying this, Finally, my brethren, finally, my sisterin, <laughs> rejoice in the Lord. This is Paul's theme. It's, it's his repeated chorus all throughout the letter. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And then he says, for, t- for me, to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is, what's the next word in your Bible? Safeguard. safeguard. Okay, for me, or for, in my Bible it says, for you it is safe. So whatever Paul is going to write in the rest of this letter, And specifically what we're going to focus on here is in chapter 3. But whatever Paul is going to proceed onto, it's stuff that he has talked with them about before. Did you hear that? For me to write the same things. These These are familiar words. These are reminders, in other words. And it's important for me to remind you, even though it might sound tedious and redundant, it's really for your safeguard for your safety. The word, the Greek word there is, uh, actually it's talking about not tipping, not tripping, um, not toppling over, not being cast down. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, hey, look, listen up, because the things I'm going to write to you right now are so that you don't fall. I mean, and maybe in this room, none of us have ever fallen, so that's, that's okay. Maybe we don't need to listen to this stuff. No, no, no. What Paul is saying is, hey, have you ever experienced being cast down? Have you ever experienced life in such a way that it trips you up and that you're not standing strong anymore? Well, let me remind you of things, because these reminders are going to keep you standing strong. That's awesome. And so, we keep reading, but before he gets to the reminders, he gets to a warning. In verse 2, beware of dogs. I knew there was something wrong with that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Beware of dogs, he says. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the, what's the next word in your Bible? The mutilation. What in the world is going on here? Whatever it is that Paul is talking about, he's, he's so focused on it that he repeats this beware command three times over. Beware, beware, beware. So what is it that we're supposed to watch out and look out for? First he says beware of dogs. Uh, this is not your 
term of endearment type of dog. This is not your puppy that you keep inside the house. The word for dog here is a loose dog, a mangy dog, a scavenger dog that's running around preying on things that are already decaying. You follow that? Beware of people who feed off of your destruction, he says. Then he says, beware of evil workers. In other words, their labor, the things that they put their energy to are only intent on your downfall. And then the final warning there, beware of the mutilation. This, this word is actually the only time this word ever appears in the New Testament. It's a word I think that Paul just kind of coined. Uh, he kind of came up with on the fly. It's a word that uh, he is referring to opponents of his, adversaries of his, whose emphasis is on circumcision, the act of circumcision, in such a way that it becomes their focal point. That it's just hurting their bodies, but really doing nothing for their hearts. Their emphasis on the act of circumcision as a necessary work to secure God's favor and salvation. Paul is saying, watch out for these folks. It's really interesting because when Paul is talking about dogs and evil workers, he's not talking about heathen idol worshipers. He's talking about Jews who are in the church, so to speak. He's talking about people who belong to to God's chosen nation. And for some reason, they are preying on other people's destruction. That all the energy that they're putting out is actually resulting in evil and not good. And it, it actually hurts. It destroys. Beware of them. Paul's most worrisome foes were not the people who put him in prison when he was in Philippi. The most worrisome foes were the people right around him who were focused on works rather than grace for salvation. Man, Paul says beware of them and oh, that God would never let us become them. Amen. Oh, that God would never let us become them. The presence of such people, even even if they're not present physically, but even their influence is such that their principles threaten our safety, cause people to totter and be cast down. Our spiritual standing, uh, our our source of joy, it's taken from us. It's robbed of us and such that Paul would call us dogs if we ever get to that side of the the ditch. Man, so, so if that's what we are to be warned of, then what do we need to be reminded of? What then makes for the opposite? What makes for not falling and tripping up? What makes for not being cast down? What makes for, for good work? <clears throat> that's what we're going to look at in the rest of this chapter here. Beginning in verse 3, we're going to find three reminders. Three reminders that Paul says, if you, if you keep focused on these things, if you have these reminders, man, you're going to stand strong. You're not going to tip over. You're not going to totter. You're going to, be, you're going to experience security and stability in Jesus. All right? So three reminders. Here we go. We're going to start in verse 3. The first three words in my Bible, Philippians 3, verse 3, it says, For we are. The first reminder that Paul wants to get across is, Who are you? It's your identity, all right? So reminder number one is a reminder of identity, the reminder of who we are. Well, let's take a look. What is it that we are? What is our identity according to this this verse? For we are the circumcision as opposed to the mutilation, right? (laughs) Okay, if there is a false version of circumcision, there's a true version of circumcision. In fact, Paul has written about this in other places. In Romans chapter 2, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, he talks about people who are Jews. Not Jews outwardly, but Jews inwardly, who have been circumcised 
in the heart. Have you read that before? Who've been, who've been circumcised in the heart. In other words, their heart has been surrendered to Jesus. When Paul says we are the circumcision, he's talking about we are people who truly belong to God, not based on what we've done in our lives, but, on, but based on what our hearts have surrendered to him. That's who you are. You stand before God as a child of him, not because of what you've done, but because how you've trusted in him, how you've surrendered to him, being a Jew inwardly. He continues this list of identity. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. I love that. Who worship God in the spirit. Let's just read the whole list. Who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Let's break this down. It says that we are, this identity we need to be reminded of is we are worshipers. We are worshipers of the true God. And it says we are worshiping God in the spirit. What's really interesting about that word worship is not, it's not your typical worship word for adoration, praise, things like that. Oh, it's actually talking about the act of service. Uh, it's, it's referencing those who serve God, not just the acts of adoration, but the acts of service. So it, we're talking about our identity being um, seeing ourselves in God's service. Like Elijah, when he comes to King Ahab, he talks about himself. He says, uh, I stand before you as one who stands before the living God. His identity is wrapped up in the fact that he serves, he obeys the living God. And what's awesome is that is we worship God in the spirit. It's not in our own strength. We serve God in the spirit, not in our own power or ability or, or skills. We obey God. We serve him in the spirit. The next thing is that our identity is that we rejoice in Christ Jesus. And uh, this, this idea of rejoicing, like we said, it's been repeated all throughout Philippians. But here it's actually talking about a different kind of, not, not the emotional sense of joy, but the fact that we can kind of lift up our heads high. We, we, can, we can boast. Maybe you have the NIV and it says we can boast in Christ Jesus. The Greek word is not about uh, rejoicing, but it's about boasting, holding our heads in confidence, not in our deeds, but in Christ's merits alone. That's why it says rejoice in Christ Jesus. And then finally, just to be absolutely sure of what your identity is, it's wrapped up in the Spirit. It's wrapped up in Christ Jesus. And then he says what it's not wrapped up in. At the end of verse 3, we are those who have no confidence in what? In the flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh. When we serve God by the Spirit, when we, when we uh, rejoice and, and glory in Christ Jesus, we won't have confidence in our flesh or our own doing will have confidence in something completely different. It's really interesting is that this is being written by a guy named Paul who knew exactly what it was like to have confidence in the flesh. Paul knew from firsthand experience, well, let me tell you, if you, if you don't know what it's like to have confidence in the flesh, let, let me tell you how it is. And in verses 4 to 6, he says, hey, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Like he, he's one-upping them circumcised the eighth day. And, and what you see here is like a pedigree, so to speak. It's his resume of confidence in the flesh, things that, that he has done outwardly that make him, or that would give him the, the right to kind of hold his head high in the flesh. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. It's ironic 
that even though he calls himself righteous and blameless, he's also a persecutor. Is it possible that when you have confidence in the flesh, you can be blameless, but you can still be a bigot? That when you have confidence in the flesh, you can be virtually perfect, but you can still violently persecute those around you. That's scary stuff. Paul says, hey, 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 that's what it's like to have confidence in the flesh. But we, our identity, is that we don't have confidence in the flesh. That means nothing to you and me. Our identity is in the Spirit, and it's in Christ Jesus. We have no confidence in the flesh. Do you follow that today? Yes or no? Yeah? Man, that's huge. Because when, when, we, when we slip, when we allow the, the, our identity to be wrapped up in other things, the things that we do, the things that we make for ourselves, that only leads to tottering, tripping, and being cast down. Ah, but when we're reminded of who we are in Christ, then we can truly stand strong and rejoice in the Lord. The second reminder that Paul wants to get to is not just a reminder of identity, but a reminder of priority. He, he's reminding us of what's really important. And all of these reminders, they kind of overlap. They have some, some overlap here, but, but he gets specific. He, he, he talks about things that are of value and things that are not. Keep reading there, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says this, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted what? I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. He's recasting his priorities, his values here. It's really interesting, that word loss, it's a, it's a marketplace term. It's an investment term. It's talking about, you know, gains and losses, capital gains, capital losses, things like that. Things that you put your money to and you realize, well, that was a bad deal. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have transacted for that. He's talking about those things that result in a detriment rather than a benefit. So what are those bad investments? Here, I mean, he's just kind of listed them. Those things of having confidence in the flesh, those outward qualities or behaviors that, that we use to, to feel like we have chips with God. It's those things that Paul thought, you know, it, it kind of merited some, some more attention and more favor from God. Hey, those things, when you, when you start thinking like that, that, those are bad investments. Paul used to think of those as gains, as advantageous, as good investments, but he now sees them as a detriment, maybe even incurring a, a, a fine or a penalty. <laughs> and in fact, at the end of verse 8, if you keep reading in 8, it says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So now all the things that he used to have confidence in, he says, no, I've reprioritized them. I think of them differently now. I count them not as gains to myself, but I count them as losses, as rubbish, he says. Maybe your Bible says dung, refuse, scraps worth, to be, worth a, a nothing to be kept, but needs to be thrown out. So then what things are really gains now that he has kind of flip-flopped his values, what do you see there? What, what are the things that are gains? According to verse 8, he lists it, Yet I indeed also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And in verse 9, these are gains for him. To be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith, in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And he keeps going, that I may 
know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What are the things that Paul thinks of as gains? If everything else, all his right standing, all his right doing, if everything else is now a loss, what's the real gain to, to Paul? The real gain is knowing Jesus. It's not how many rights I have on my account. It's the depth of my relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus, gaining Christ, being found in him, his righteousness, not his own. When things are in their proper place, what means the most to me is whether I know God. When I really know what's important, then life eternal is found in knowing Jesus. Personally, firsthand, in a real relationship. The bottom line that Paul is getting to is putting all your weight in the Savior and no weight on yourself. That's the real gain. When you have Jesus, you've got everything. We've talked about this. This has kind of been repeated over the last few weeks. And the question that I, you know, as I was studying this, this week, just uh, the question kept striking my heart. Man, Godfrey, what, what am I really putting my confidence in? You know, what, what do I find my sense of significance in? When I feel up, what has made me feel up? Is it the circumstances around me? Is it the things that other people say? Is it the things that other people have done or given me? Is it what I have done and accomplished? My sense of significance and source of satisfaction, according to Paul, should not be on self, but on the Savior. To know him. To know him. What is it, what is it that makes me hold my head high? Is it possible that the very things that I count as gains are actually losses in the end? You know, sometimes we uh, see this whole, like, flesh versus spirit, putting confidence in Jesus rather than confidence in self, and we think, yeah, yeah, we've got it. I mean, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, not in myself, things like that. But, but the tendency, I tell you, if, if you haven't noticed it, even when we profess to believe, we are still trusting in ourselves. Um, and, and I don't know, that, that, that does work between the Holy Spirit and your heart to know how you put confidence in the flesh. Um, but maybe, it, how does it pop up? How does it reveal itself? Maybe it's in doing things that, maybe you feel like you're doing things to get on God's good side. I don't know if, that, if you ever say that out loud, but do you ever think that way? Man, if, as long as I have my devotions, then God is going to bless me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Are we thinking transactionally with God? Like even that very act, it's supposed to be about a relationship with Jesus, but we've turned that, re- that act into what I get out of it. Maybe it shows up, this confidence in the flesh shows up when we feel like we deserve things from God, when we feel entitled, or when we start measuring ourselves and how close we are to God based on the things I've done or I haven't done. Confidence in the flesh pops up in ways that, that are insidious and very inconspicuous. And that's why Paul says we need to die to self daily. We need, we need that daily crucifixion of self. The bottom line is, do I know Jesus? And that needs to be our, our heart's desire. That needs to be the thing that we pursue uh, above any and everything. It needs to be our priority. In fact, um, man, there's some sobering words I was reminded of this week in Matthew chapter 7. You know, Jesus himself, when he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, 
He talks about the distinction between the things that we do, placing our confidence in things that we do, versus our confidence in the relationship that we have. And he says in Matthew 7, On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. You know, these are people who profess Christ as their Lord. We prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. So they're coming before God saying, Hey, look, this is what I've done. Really like miraculous things they're 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 nothing to kind of sniff at you know these are this is big they prophesied they cast out demons they perform many miracles in your name but i will reply i never knew you i never knew you it's possible to have confidence in the flesh even on that judgment day and god to look and say man but where was the relationship where was the relation these are sobering words to people who place confidence in the things that we do for Jesus over and above the relationship that we have with Jesus. I tell you what, there's no joy in that. There's no, there's, there won't be any joy in that on that day. In fact, man, uh, in John chapter 6, I was reading earlier this week, um, just in my devotional experience, I've been going through the book of John. And you know, after the feeding of the 5,000, the people are looking for Jesus on the other side of the lake, and they're, they're wanting to pursue Jesus. That looks good. They're, they're wanting to be in Jesus' presence. But then Jesus kind of rebukes them a little. And he says in John 6, I think you can read it in verses uh, 28 and 29 of John chapter 6. He says, you guys are seeking me just because you had bread and, and your stomachs were filled. <laughs> in other words, you're seeking me just for what you get out of the deal. I don't know if that ever happens. We seek Jesus. We're asking God for answers. We're asking God for blessings. But then he says, what you really need is, is to know me. What you really need is, is to know me. And that's why in John chapter 17, verse 3, life eternal, the thing that we're all after is knowing Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. Do we understand the priority? What's really important is not our rights and wrongs, but our relationship with Jesus. And that relationship will produce rights. It will produce a life of obedience and conformity to his will. But when we keep placing confidence in the flesh and we forget what's important, then we totter, then we trip, then we're cast down, and there's no joy in that. In fact, uh, in, a, in the book Steps to Christ, something I love reading at least once a year, it says there are those who profess to serve God, like we read in Matthew 7, while they rely upon their own efforts to obey his law to form a right character and secure salvation. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ. Oh Lord, keep us in that part where we experience the deep sense of the love of Christ. Then it keeps going. But they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. Such a religion is worth how much? Nothing. (laughs) Such a religion is worth nothing. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. Ah, Lord, save me from that, right? That's a joyless life. Maybe some of us are realizing that we've experienced seasons like that. Maybe right now is a season like that. Where the things that you're doing for God um, are really out of a sense of duty and requirement instead of out of a deep sense of love. And God is, is appealing to your heart today. He's appealing to my heart today. 
Come to me, and I will give you rest. The life of uh, dry formality, of mere talk, heavy drudgery, that, that is a burden that we don't need to bear any longer. Come to Jesus. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him. And so this, this is the, the joy that, that Paul wants to restore. That's why he's reminding them, hey, look, first things first, priority. remember what's important, that confidence in the flesh, that's not going to be a gain to you. That's actually going to be a loss to you. Remember who you are, that you're a worshiper in spirit, that, that you are rejoicing. You can boast in Christ Jesus and not in your flesh. And the third reminder, so not just the identity, not just the priority, but Paul's third reminder is a reminder of trajectory. In other words, you're going somewhere. The reminder of where we are, or maybe we should say where we're not, and the fact that we are headed somewhere higher and deeper. In fact, he he keeps going. Philippians chapter 3. In verse 12, he tells us right off. He says, not that I have already attained. It's like, hey, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. You kind of hear the sense of movement that Paul is talking about. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. This is really neat. When we're thinking in terms of checklists and merits, there's a tendency to think that, okay, once I've got A, B, C, all the way down to Z, then I'm there. I've arrived. When we think in terms of rights and wrongs, then we feel like we can accomplish and we can arrive at that goal. But when we think in terms of relationship, then knowing Jesus is infinitely deep. Do you follow that? When we think of, in terms of things that I can do, then there is a finite number of things that I can do. When I think in terms of relationship, then that relationship has no end. I'm constantly going deeper I'm constantly going higher. That's why Paul says, not that I've already attained. Yeah, I have relationship with Jesus, but I'm not going to settle. Yeah, I'm married, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I stop dating. Does that make sense? Like, I'm going to keep going deeper and higher in a relationship with Jesus. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on, he says. I love that. I press on. In fact, what's interesting about that word is that it's the same word for persecute. (laughs) It's the same word that Paul uses when he's describing his persecuting life. I was chasing after people to hurt them. But in the positive context, I'm chasing after God now to love him. I press on with that same kind of fervor. Now it's rightly directed. Now I have my priorities straight. Now I have my identity straight. And I'm pressing on in this trajectory to know Jesus. To know Jesus. He says in verse 12, that I may lay hold. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. When you read that, it's kind of uh, ambiguous. Like, what is it then that, that Paul is trying to lay hold of? Well, whatever Jesus was trying to lay hold of me about. <laughs> well, what was that? When Jesus stretched down from heaven's throne, what was he reaching for? Was he reaching for a list of things that he said that he did? Or was he reaching for a person? Was he reaching for your soul? Jesus was reaching not for rights and wrongs. He was reaching for relationship. When Paul says, I'm going to press on and chase that down, whatever it was that Jesus was, was laying hold of me, I'm going to lay hold of that too. In fact, the word lay hold, it's not emphasizing the act of grasping. It's, it's emphasizing the result of that grasping. Now that I'm laying hold, 
it's mine. It's emphasizing the possession of the laying hold. And so when I hear that, the possession idea reminds me of that new covenant promise. God laid hold of me. Hey, you are my people. You remember the rest of that covenant? And I will be your God. When Paul says, I'm going to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me, he laid hold of me so that I could be his people. I'm going to lay hold of him so that he can be my God. Reminds me of that song in in the Song of Solomon. It said, you know, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Yeah? There's a mutual affection. It's not just one person's pursuing the other, but that they're both pursuing each other passionately. When Paul is saying this, hey man, I am pressing on. Jesus pursued me with everything he had. I'm going to pursue him with everything I've got. I am my beloved's and he is mine. We are his people and he is our God. He continues in verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Again, it's just that reminder, like, I'm not there yet. But here's one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind. For Paul, that meant, you know, that life of confidence in the flesh. I'm not going to remember that value system. I'm not going to remember my old identity that hurt people and harmed people along the way of supposedly serving God. I'm going to forget all that stuff and reach forward to those things which are ahead. In verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For Paul, his confidence in the flesh was behind him and finding, he he now finds gain in a personal first-hand relationship with Jesus. That's what he's going to keep straining towards. That's what he's going to keep seeking after with all that he's got. More of Christ to know, more of self to surrender. Paul says, I'm going to keep on pressing. I'm going to keep on pressing. That's his trajectory. That's his trajectory. And ultimately, it's going to lead to being one with Jesus. On, on the other side of that, way beyond the blue, we're going to have face-to-face communion with him. And this is what Paul wants to remind us of. If you're feeling, friends, that your, your steps are tottering, if you're feeling like you're, you're being cast down, whether, you know, not, not just physically, but your, your hearts are being cast down, your, your confidence in God is being cast down, remember these things. Remember who you are. That your identity is not wrapped up in what you do, but what Jesus has done. Remember what's important. Remember your priority. That really what's important is is not how many things I've got on my checklist, but the person that I know and love. When you feel like you're kind of like out of sorts and you're, you're tripping up all over, you're not experiencing joy, remember your trajectory. I tell you, when you feel like you've arrived, it's going to turn into dry formality and mere drudgery every time. Remember that you're headed somewhere. You're headed to someone. We are God's beloved. Is he yours? Simple appeal today is go all in. None of this stuff, identity, priority, trajectory, none of this stuff is like put your toe in the water. I'm, I'm kind of Jesus. I, I, I'm kind of belonging to Jesus, but I'm kind of not. This priority thing, it's, none of that is like partly priorities for God and partly priorities for yourself. The idea of trajectory and stuff, it's not I'm kind of headed towards relationship with him and I'm kind of not. The appeal simply is go all in. Go all in. Let all that you base your significance in be wrapped up in Jesus. Let all that you find to be gains in your life 
be wrapped up in Jesus. Let all that you stretch for, press on to hunt after. Let all that be wrapped up in Jesus. Uh, the other day, we were privileged to hang out with Brent and Cassie. They, um, <clears throat> they took us out to Castlewood Canyon. I don't know how many of you have ever tried rock climbing before, but that was some fun stuff. <laughs> no? <laughs> when I think about going all in, man, th- this was a huge illustration. Like, uh, there, it's one thing to watch someone else rock climb, you know, and watch someone else be kind of supported with the rope. But once you're like on the rock and you realize that down is down. <laughs> that rope means everything to you, right? The person who's holding the rope means everything to you. Thanks, guys, for being trustworthy <laughs> believers there. And when I think about this, this, you know, this identity, this priority, this trajectory, what God is calling for is that we would cling to him. It was interesting, you know, kind of like our kids actually got to try it out. We had a kid's harness, too. Thanks for that. Um, but it was interesting to watch our kids and to realize, man, that's totally me, like clinging to the rock and not sure if I can actually make any other move because I don't want to let go because I'm relying completely upon my finger strength and my foothold and whatever. But if I were able to lean on the rope, I'd realize that everything was going to be just fine. Because even at the top, you know, you, you get to the top and you're like, yes, yes, but I still have to lean on the rope now to get down. <laughs> you know, that, that was the point of repelling and stuff. And And that's the point of being all in, putting your full weight, not on what you can hold, not on your strength, but putting your full weight on someone else's strength. When Jesus says, hey, I have an identity for you, I have different priorities for you, I have a trajectory for you, he's inviting us to lean, (laughs) to lean fully. And part of leaning means letting go, right? And so, if you are desirous of finding all your identity, priority, and trajectory in Jesus, we've got some repelling ropes, and we're going to practice... I'm kidding. (laughs) No. And I just really want to encourage you, friends, put your full weight in Jesus. There, There actually is an act of symbolizing your full weight is in Jesus, that your identity is wrapped up only in him, that your priority is only in him, that your trajectory, where you're headed in life, is only in him. And that act is baptism. Maybe you've seen it before. Maybe you've watched it before. Maybe you've experienced it before. But it's about going all in. Baptism, you don't just kind of put your hand in and, all right, now I belong to Jesus. (laughs) No, it's all of you. You know, you don't don't keep your wallet out. All of you. (laughs) All of you. Being submerged in Jesus. It's a public declaration that I am all in. That I'm leaning fully on him. Maybe you've experienced that. And I want to encourage you, if you've experienced baptism, allow your heart to just be rebaptized today. <laughs> be all in for Jesus. And I want to appeal to anyone who hasn't made that public declaration that, you know what, my identity, I used to wrap it up in myself, but now I'm going to wrap it up in Jesus. My priorities used to be about self, but now I'm going to have confidence not in the flesh, but in Jesus. My trajectory, I thought I knew where I was headed in life, but now I'm headed towards Jesus. <laughs> If you want to make that public commitment, I encourage you. Why wait? Let's, let's do that. I, I would love to be able to facilitate a preparation process to, to be baptized, to submerge, to go all in, to put your full weight on that rope. Maybe you were baptized and you've since departed from that path. And you want to be rebaptized and recommit, rededicate, and say, you know what? 
all my hope is in Jesus. If that's you, man, let's, why wait? God is giving you an opportunity. No, we don't have a pool back here to be re, uh, baptized in, but we, I, just, I guess my simple appeal is, if you would like to be baptized, if you would like to be rebaptized, let us know. And we would love to prepare you for that awesome celebration, that awesome declaration that you belong to Jesus. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, today we are thankful for the opportunity just to reflect upon the fact that you are our all in all. Now, some of this stuff is kind of heady and um, forces us to be reflective. And Lord, maybe at some point your Holy Spirit was just kind of tapping and saying, you know what? Your identity is somewhere completely different. Find your identity in me. Your values, your priorities are, are totally skewed. Find your priorities in me. Father, our movement, the things that we're, we feel progress about, Lord, if we are finding those things in anything else but you, please redeem us from that. And I just pray, God, that today our hearts would be so solidly secure, safe in Jesus. And with every head bowed, every eye closed, Lord, um, I just want to pray for those who, who maybe sense a prompting from your Holy Spirit to say, you know what? I want to be baptized. I need to be rebaptized and rededicate my identity, priorities, and trajectory to Jesus. If that's you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to just pray specifically for you. And so go ahead, just, just raise your hand to this guy and say, yeah, that's, that's me. I want to make that commitment. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you see the desires of our hearts. Thank you that you long to to be the one that not just pursues us, but you long to reveal to us just how good you are so that we would be inspired to pursue you too. And so today, we thank you so much for the ways in which our hearts have been stirred, and we ask that you would redeem us from ourselves, that you would lay self to the dust, that we would seek Jesus with all that we've got. Lord, may we do this one thing, forgetting what is behind, reaching for what is ahead, putting our full weight on Jesus alone. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen.